kids still go to school with each other, right? Even if they're segregated. When we go to speak at schools, they don't have to necessarily be in neighborhoods that are highly impacted by violence. But kids that grow up in these neighborhoods, even if they have a nuclear family and social support system, they're still impacted by it. I work with youth because I, I feel like there are there are hope and there are future. one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. So here's one of the reasons why I absolutely love Instagram. I get to connect with so many amazing people every day. I was recently on the Mel Robbins podcast and I've had hundreds of DMs come through and be very supportive of what happened there. Check out Mel Robbins episode 13, Your Dreams Are Not a Joke. That is me that she's talking to. And this woman, Samantha, finds me, I guess, through one of the videos that Mel put out about our episode. And we just started talking and having this great conversation about going after your dreams and different passions that we had. And I noticed on her Instagram, she had this beautiful clip of a documentary Uh, about the Patterson Healing Collective by Michael Karras, K-A-R-A-S. And I was really taken by the video and I started kind of doing some digging as we all do when someone's tagged on a video. And I found this lovely woman, Lisa Chaudhry, and I asked Samantha if she knew her and she said, yes, I I, I work with them and, and she knows who I am. And I immediately reached out to Lisa and said, I'd love to learn more about what you're doing. It's very similar to some of the work that I'm doing, and I'd love to be able to work together. And we got on a call and turned it into an episode. So this is us sort of meeting for the first time, and I think you're going to be really amazed by who she is and what she's doing. Lisa Chaudhry, great hair. Um, <laughs> so I saw a documentary that um, our mutual friend had posted, Samantha. It was amazing. I was so touched and moved by what you're doing. And I just, I wanted to have you on the podcast because you care a lot about our justice system and what's working and what is unjust about it. And I think it's a really powerful conversation that we all need to have. And I just want to give you a little background. When I went to Chicago a year and a half ago to film my interview show on the street called Let's Save the World with Barbara Heller. I started out by saying, how can we save the world? And by the end of the day, something, I think it was God's voice was like kind of creeping. And I started asking a second question, which was, what are we going to do about the South side of Chicago? And everyone said the same thing. Do you want to know what they said to me? You can totally relate. They said, oh, it's so far away. And it didn't matter whether they were young, old, black, white, purple, green, like didn't, you know, sexual orientation, Democrat, Republican, somewhere in between. They all said the same. It's just so far away. And I said, actually, it's not. It's less than 10 miles. And you think they're just going to keep it contained? Whoever lives that the South Side people are going to like, and it really upset me. And whenever I see a debate about politics in this country, the United States of America, or I hear someone talking about anything that has to do with American politics, the South side of Chicago comes up. And I consider it like the heartbeat of our of our nation, similar to Patterson, New Jersey. So I wanted to talk about that because if someone said that to you on the street, what would you say back? They need resources and support and investment 
that's really what all of this is about is economic support so that communities can thrive, right? It's not that these are bad people. You put anyone in a situation where it's a hot box, right, of issues, social problems, with no infrastructure to support them, this will happen. And that's not unique to the United States that's in any country. So um, what's happening in the south side of Chicago is the same thing that's happening in Patterson, it's happening in Newark. What the real issue is that there's a lot of people in this world that are almost like they rather put a blindfold on, walk about their day, than you know, think for, with empathy, a giving heart, even the politics. People's lives should not be about politics. Housing should not be about politics. Food and security should not be about politics. Racism shouldn't be about politics. It's just the right thing to do. These are people that are given really tough circumstances. Nobody should be living like this. And if we're going to come up with, and you're right, you can't seclude them. That's why you see now mass shootings are happening almost every day. The, the culture of, you know, of um, violence is permeating. That's why gun violence is going up everywhere, not just in certain neighborhoods. Robberies are going up. You can't keep depriving people and putting them in these invisible, I like to say almost like these cages, right, where they can't be removed from and think that it's never going to permeate other people's lives. It, it, it affects all of us. Kids still go to school with each other, right? Even if they're segregated. When we go to speak at schools, they don't have to necessarily be in neighborhoods that are highly impacted by violence. But kids that grow up in these neighborhoods, even if they have a nuclear family and social support systems, they're still impacted by it. There's somebody my age that is killed or is going to prison or they didn't have the same chance. And that's why I always work with youth because I, I feel like there are there are hope and there are future. It's not like you could just, you know, kind of hide people from these issues, especially youth. They 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 see it and it's, this is the, the world they're growing up in and it's sad. I feel sad for these young people that are growing up in the world now. Me too. I was really moved by your film and I, I want to talk a little bit about, we kind of started in the middle, but I want to do talk about how you got into this. What was it in, that inspired you studying criminal justice that made you go, something's wrong and this is how I think I can change it. What was the clicker for you that got you to do what you're doing now? And what do you do now? Let's talk about that. Well, I grew up in Passaic, which is the neighboring town. So I always knew what was going on in Passaic and Patterson. It's just, it's the same issue that I grew up for. I grew up in a working class family. I knew what it was like to see some of my friends and my peers, like where they didn't have um, certain social support systems. They were being mistreated by um, institutions, even in school, like the lack of investment in our futures. It is frustrating. You have to be a very strong young person with a lot of passion and drive and purpose. That's why it was always important to me because I had those people growing, had adults that saw something in me and invested their time in. And for me, it was always important to give that back. I'm a very blessed person. My parents worked very hard. And they were they couldn't always be there because of the we live in a capitalist system, right? They have to pay rent. So, you know, they couldn't come up to the school conferences or talent shows or put me in extracurricular activity. And that's the case of a lot of us folks that work in these communities. Our parents are working so hard. Our families are working so hard. It's not that they're not engaged in our lives or don't want to be, but it's just hard because of the economics. Um, when I um, left high school and went to college, I always knew I want to come back and work with youth. If I didn't have that support, I wouldn't be where I am. So the first thing I want to do when I came out of college is in um, juvenile probation. I always want to work with young people. I want to work with justice-involved youth. I did that for 10 years. I got tired of seeing them die. I left in 2014. I was finishing up my PhD 
And the goal was always to come back and see how I could bring money and figure out how do I get evidence-based programs and research money so that Patterson has a chance, these young people have a chance. And that was always in me. Like it was, I always wanted to come back home and come back to my county and my community through this work because I know the greatness in all of us of our community folks. As far as when I left probation, I stopped, kept working in the community, um, joined some of these activists that are currently on our team now. We were just trying to figure things out. And so when the RFP came up, uh, I reached out to the hospital because I already had a working partnership with them before from, from working with probation. And I just used those, leveraged those relationships and asked them if they would invest in us. And they did. And I'm very grateful for them because we couldn't have done this without their fiscal support because we're a nonprofit, small grassroots organization. That was a lot of money for them to risk themselves. To, the first grant was $2 million. And that was all money that they had to front load us because I didn't have to, we didn't have the capacity to carry that money. So that's how we all started, how, how this all came about. It's amazing. So can you explain a little bit about what RFP is and is specifically what you're doing with your organization? It was a government grant that came out from the attorney general's office. It was to work with victims of violence back in um, 2019. We applied for it. And mind you, we launched during the pandemic. So you could only imagine the pressures on the hospital. So we are in the trenches working with victims of gun violence. And, you know, gun violence went up everywhere, including Patterson during the, the pandemic. And along with dealing with COVID, our hospital team also had to help me um, and our team launch, you know, to deal with gun violence. An RFP is basically a re request for proposal for government funding to write a grant. And it's basically a plan that you give the government and then they decide whether or not they're going to invest in your program or your ideas to deal with um, a, a social problem like gun violence. They, they did. We were very fortunate that we got the funding. And the hospital is the actual grants grantee and then we're the subgrants. But that infrastructure helped us now to lay the foundation to apply for other grants and other programming and engage in other ways of dealing with violence, not just when they get shot right now. We can do prevention work, mentoring work, and all that kind of stuff. And it sounds like your organization, one of the highlights of it is like when a shooting happens, you go right to the scene, you calm some people down, which is very dangerous because I would imagine that there could be some retaliation right away or there'll, there'll be people having complete P, like not PTSD, but like they're inside of the trauma. And it sounds like you're trying to bypass it a little bit because I'll put the documentary in the, in the show notes. Don't worry, guys, you're going to watch the whole thing. It's great. And um, I've never seen anything like this where we hear about ambulance chasers, right? We hear about lawyers going after money and we hear about social workers trying to get people like a few days later. Are you okay? You guys go right to the scene of the crime. So can you take, take us through a little bit of like what specifically you're doing that's very different than any other organization? Sure. So we have what's called the Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Program. So our partnership is with St. Joseph's University Medical Hospital and their emergency room. As soon as somebody is shot and comes into the ER, they call us. So it doesn't matter if it's two, three in the morning and they call us. And then if we have the capacity, we'll dispatch a team right away. Usually we do it right away if it's like three or more victims because we just don't have a large team. We're working 40 hours a week. So I try to do my best to make sure that they get some rest too, right? When they call us, we dispatch a team right away. It is dangerous, right? In theory, right? But for us, we are community members. So we have worked with these people for our community for a long time. So when we get to the hospital, we're working more as victim advocates to making sure that this person who was shot gets the medical services they need. And I, like I said, we launched during the pandemic. So you understand doctors and nurses were very busy. So it, it, it became even important, more important for us to be there to help 
make sure that they were getting the medicine they needed or the, the attention they needed. Um, we're also there to make sure that we're like the conduit between them and their families who are waiting outside. In the pandemic, families weren't allowed inside the ER. So imagine you're a mom and you just heard your son got shot. You want to know if they're dead or alive, right? And that's nerve-wracking. So we have a team, per, a person from our team that'll wait outside with the family and we'll communicate via phone just to make sure that the family understands that this person is okay or not. Or if they're not, not that we, we're not medical doctors, but we'll ask the doctors to come out. Can you talk to the family? That means so much to those families and those victims at that time because they're fighting between life or death. And before we launched or before this program existed, sometimes Black and brown victims of violence are seen as perpetrators, and they weren't given that same level of advocacy and empathy. So we are trying to change the narrative of making sure that people understand you treat these victims just like a rape victim, a DV victim. Nobody deserves to get shot. I don't care what they do. We, we have no right to take a human life. Nobody does. And if we're going to really try to break the, the cycle of violence, because that's what it is, it's a public health issue, then we need to deal with it with empathy and understand the root causes of it. So that's what we try to do with ab- our advocacy work. And, you know, that 100%. Has and I also noticed that a couple of the people who either were shot or there was a like a brother or a sister of the victim who got shot instead of retaliating because they had your care. And there was also a social work component, like a psychological kind of evaluation and, and some empathy there at that scene. It made them not want to retaliate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's more of the care we provide, right? When we show up, we're like, you know, what do you need? How can we help you? What are some supports? How can we make sure this never happens to you again? And I think that they see the sincerity in us and that we keep showing up. Even if they get rude with us, we still show up. You know, like, how can we continue to support you? They'll call us for medical help. When they see us continuously come up and show up for them, it's easy to get their buy-in. Like, okay, can you make sure that this stops? You know, like, what can we do to, you know, let's end this with you, you know what I mean? And so that it doesn't continue because what's going to happen next is that, you know, your friend might get shot, then their friend is going to get shot. And then it just becomes this never ending battle. Meanwhile, you know, we try to remind them of what's important in their life. You know, your family's out there, your parents are out there, your child is out there. They need you. Right. So since they all need you, let's figure out how we make sure that you heal properly. Right. So let's get you to the trauma clinic. Make sure you get your physical therapy so you can walk 100 percent. And then if your children need food, let's make sure that they get food cards and stuff like that. If you need if you have housing insecurity, let's figure out how to make sure you get housing Um, and and those things, because the violence isn't because people are generally bad and making bad. You know, it's, it's a frustration of all the things that are going wrong in a person's life, right? And when the person is not feeling any support or don't feel safe, right? When a person doesn't feel safe, they will take their safety in their own hands sometimes, you know? And we have to understand that. That's what was happening, you know? And um, our job is to try to make them feel safe, you know what I mean? Make them feel supported and make them feel heard. And um, that goes a long way, so. Yeah, it does. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, The One Beautiful Soul, because um, I happen to be Jewish and uh, I grew up in a middle-class family. And then at some point we became upper middle-class and I've, you know, lived in all kinds of neighborhoods since I'm 18, because at 18, we sort of lost our, our financing as a family. And I had to live in, you know, some really interesting places. In fact, I lived in the projects a few times. Um, And even recently, I lived right outside the projects in New York and made a bunch of videos about uh, Black and Jewish relationships and unification. This is way before Gay said anything. Um, There's always been tension between our communities. And then also, you know, in, in conjunction with that, there's been 
issues and um, racism and, uh, you know, gang violence that unfortunately goes uh, across, you know, class, across different systems, across different races and backgrounds. And um, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I was so sick of hearing everything politicized. And I think that it needs to be a spiritual conversation. And when we talk about soul, we we don't even have to look at the outside of a person. We should have empathy and respect for someone's dignity as long as they're living. You know, um, in Israel, one of the most people don't know this. This is just like a random thing. But when I was living in Israel during the Antifada in 2001, um, I'm older than I look. I was 24 at the time. Uh, I, w- I remember opening up the Jerusalem Post and seeing in the midsection, there was a terrorist who had just committed an act of violence against 13 people and seven of them had died and he had shot his own leg off and he was in a hospital bed right next to one of the victims of his, it was a bombing, it was shrapnel and he was getting care. He was getting emergency care in the in the hospital. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I wonder if this would happen in America. I don't think people know that. Like that was happening in the Middle East. And that was one of those memories that I was like, wow, this is not a political show. And this is not a, about governments, but it is about soul. And it is about taking care of people and giving people dignity when even, even if they did something horrific and disgusting, they're still, I guess, entitled to, you know, a trial. My dad is a pretty famous expert witness. He's a psychologist. And he was once representing a, a 13-year-old who shot and killed my teacher here in South Florida with one bullet. And my dad helped him get 19 years in prison instead of life or the death penalty. These are issues that are very close to my heart. And I think two things can be true at the same time, that someone can have a psychotic moment or been raised with such racism that they want to go out and kill a bunch of people. And I still believe that a person could have some sort of dignified care and change their whole life around. And then because of that care that we give them, change the cycle of violence. Am I legitimizing terrorism? No. Am I legitimizing gang violence? Absolutely not. But I think we have to start having the conversation about what do we do with the children and the parents and the grandparents that are watching all these things happen. When it comes to what you're doing, what are some of the changes that you're seeing in the communities where people are actually changing their whole lives around and they they actually stop the cycle of violence? Five people on our staff were clients of ours. Now they're doing this work. It's not easy, right? They're still living in those neighborhoods. Their friends are still getting shot, but they're having those conversations. They, uh, most of my outreach workers, they were just shot within the last year. When we talk about restorative justice, we have lived examples on our team. They talk to their friends after they get shot. Like, imagine, like, that takes a lot of patience and courage buying into our philosophy and they're the change makers and healers in their neighborhood. You know, it's contagious, right? Love is contagious. Hope is contagious. So when we do these events, saw it in the documentary. It's the kids from the, the neighborhood that are coming and helping us. They're the ones that are unloading the chairs. They're the ones that are doing whatever we ask them to do. You don't know how many times they ask me, Lisa, can I get a job with you? You know, it's not that they don't want to work. There's no access, right? There's, there's not opportunities for them. If I had a billion dollars, everybody would be working. I know that they would show up. Who doesn't like just making sure kids are safe and and having fun? And that's basically with our events. We want to, the goal is to change the narrative around that neighborhood. These are not hot spots. These are neighborhoods that we're going to call healing spaces. Kids that grow up in these neighborhoods should not only remember gun violence. Oh, people get shot all the time. That shouldn't be their only memory of their childhood. Let's create some happy moments for them so that they also remember there was a lot of good people that, you know, cared about them and did stuff for free so that they could have some safe 
safe and happy memories. There's so much change. Um, numeric, the neighborhoods in our catchment areas, when we first started, they had the most violence. Now they have the least. I mean, not least out of the whole city, but the areas, the pockets of where the violence was happening. Gone down a lot. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so there's some proof to the pudding too, besides just, you know, feel good story. I wonder if you could make this national or global because... I can't tell you when I tell the story about going to Chicago and having people say, oh, it's so far away. I hear other people from Kansas City, from Atlanta, from Detroit saying to me, oh, no, 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 no. South side of Chicago looks like Highlands uh, Monk Village compared to where I live. Mine is even worse than the side, south side of Chicago. That's what they would say to me. It's frightening. And it's also a huge wake up call to see these segregated communities taking, unfortunately, the power of violence, which is awful, outside. And it's almost like, to me, somebody saying, like, are you going to help us now? Like, is anyone going to help us now? And it's unfortunate that we are living in a world right now where people are believing that, right? Because I think you're a great example of you've empowered yourself to create this, this organization, you and a bunch of other people, you didn't do it alone. I wish that that idea was more contagious. If you could have self-love, if you could believe in God and, and feel the love of God, like just to, to know, like you are a soul, you matter. If you're alive, if your heart is beating, you have a job to do, to, to feel empowered. Can you tell me a little bit more about your philosophy? Angela Davis quote. This quote is um kind of what we live by here. Act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. I can't express to you how many times I've heard that what we are trying to do is impossible and then we make it possible and we just show them and we keep showing them and we keep showing up with radical love and our mission is to change, be, be healing. At the end of the day, hurt people hurt people. Um, our goal is to teach people how to love themselves so they don't hurt people anymore. And that's what we're doing. Amen. Well, that's really in conjunction with what we're doing at Ether Arts, which is my organization. I have my friend Freedom coming with me to Chicago to speak to youth. And I think you're 100% right about youth. They are our hope. And even if they've been jaded and they've had abuse happen to them or cycles of violence, they can also be young enough to be impressionable that they can meet someone like you and be really moved and you can pierce their heart in a different way. We're going to speak to different communities just to create awareness and also to create, meditate and create programs. That's what I do, where I get people in a room, no matter how old they are, moms, kids, guardians, dads, whatever. We're all sitting there. We meditate in a guided meditation. We send love to people who have, may have hurt us before, maybe aren't even here anymore. And then we transform that into creativity. So we make short films, documentaries, write songs, raps, do sketch comedy, we paint and we create things with it because sometimes in therapy, you can go to therapists, but sometimes that anger just kind of comes out and it just stays in the room. And one-on-one, -on -one, it feels good for a moment. It's a venting session, but nothing actually comes of it. But if you like create it into something creative, like your youth programs, what you're doing, like getting people out, doing sports, dancing, talent shows, those are the kinds of things we want to do. And we want to show people like your staff when we help them write a TED talk or a motivational speech and have them speak. And then we hear from the audience and we break into groups and they get to speak. It's not just, let me talk at you and tell you how I created my life to be great. How are you going to do it? 
So it would be really great to partner with you. Where's your family from and how does your own culture tie into what you're doing? Um, my family's from Bangladesh. We're Hindu Bengalis, really believe in the village and family. Always, My parents always, you know, believed in helping others. So I think that that's embedded in me. Yeah, I think that's where it comes from. And just like being able to give people chances. That's really important. You know, I believe in karma. Souls, that all of us are a soul and on this earth. I, I often tell my staff, like, not to take things personally that other people say. It just It's just a reflection of where they are in their lives right now and our job is to consistently show up so that we can help them elevate those beliefs come from my spiritual practice and do you consider yourself a hindu i was born hindu i consider myself more spiritual more than being conformed <laughs> religion to be honest i see god everywhere doesn't matter if i go to church or a temple or a mosque me too yeah well it's great to speak with you how can we get a hold of you how can we raise funds for you and give charity to you how can how can we help you in any way to donate to our cause, you can go to pattersonhealingcollective.org. There's a PayPal link that anybody can donate on. You can follow us on at Patterson Healing Collective on Facebook. Yeah. Our website for the organization is www.reimaginingjustice.org. Two websites. One is specifically for the HRIP and then overall the organization. So Reimagining Justice or pattersonhealingcollective.org. And you can donate on both sites. So the funding goes to doing our event for the community. And um, there's victims that need our support. And sometimes insurance doesn't cover everything everything or our grants don't cover everything. So we try to use that for like things like emergency housing, food insecurity and stuff like that. Well, thank you so much for being here. Please keep doing the work that you're doing. You have so much thank courage you. and you made me cry almost like three times. I just love how impromptu that whole interview was. And now here's some nuggets of wisdom. Lisa started out studying criminal justice, grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, which also happens to be a very Jewish neighborhood. And also in Patterson, she grew up in New Jersey, grew up in a working class family. And as she grew up, she noticed that both at school and in other institutions, kids who grew up in lower to middle class families were being treated differently than the kids that were growing up in upper middle class and higher class families. She knew from a young age that she wanted to change that which she saw happening around her. And so she would go off to college and then return right back to her hometown to change things. She said that the reason why she was given so much in her life is because of her parents. Her parents inspired her to believe in her own passions and develop a drive because they had their own passions and drive. And even if they couldn't always spend a lot of time with her because they were working so hard and incredibly long hours, they would say to her, we love you and we want you to work hard too. Out of college, she worked in juvenile probation. She was tired of seeing that population die and so she kept asking the same question over and over again. How do I get the young people of Patterson, New Jersey, to have a chance to grow? She joined activists. She worked with the relationships that she had at the hospital that she had been working at. And somehow she came across a government grant to work with victims of violence. She and her team launched her nonprofit during the pandemic, which was not an easy thing to do. And there were many victims of gun violence. In fact, it went up during the pandemic. They got a grant of $2 million and the hospital was the main grantee and her organization was the sub-grantee. They do prevention and mentoring work for who, people who are victims and families of victims of gun violence. They go to the scene of the crimes and they calm people down. They have a hospital violence prevention program. When someone gets shot in the ER, they come to the hospital to talk with the victims and their families. They go in any time of day or night. Lisa believes hope and love are contagious. She's seen the effects of that through all the programs that she's done. And I absolutely loved that line. So I wanted to repeat it. They do advocacy work in the hospital. They do 
prevention work, mentoring work. They help them get better housing, food security, job security. Lisa says kids should not grow up only seeing gun violence and crime at home. She wants to change the narrative. They should not be just hot spots of crime, but places where love and hope can grow to. Let's create some happy moments, some happy memories for these kids growing up in Patterson and Passaic, New Jersey. And so far, the areas that they've gone into used to have the most violence, and now they have the least violence out of the pockets of gun violence prone communities that are around Patterson and Passaic, New Jersey. She says, our goal is to teach people how to love themselves so they don't hurt others anymore. And again, if you'd like to support her cause, go to reimaginingjustice.com or pattersonhealingcollective.org. And if you'd like to make a donation to my organization, you can just go to barbheller.com, send me an email at info at barbheller.com. You can also check out Ether Arts, which is on my website at barbheller.com. Just look for it on the homepage. Together, we can make the brightest differences. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode could inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always. Always.